tough year. Of course it's tough. Um, however, um, there are a lot of people in Perth that have got money. Uh, a lot of people in Perth that have made money. I think if your business case makes sense and you can articulate that, you'll find them. Welcome to Startup West, the podcast about building scalable tech startups in sunny Western Australia. My name's Charlie Gunningham. And I'm Danelle Cross. And in this episode, we're talking with Josephine Muir, the founder and CEO of medical business Noisy Guts. This business has won numerous awards and funding for the development of its acoustic belt. Hi, Joe, and welcome to Startup West. Hi, Danelle. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Joe. Great to have you here and mm. welcome to Riff. It's great to be recording this podcast um, right here on St George's Absolutely. Terrace in Perth. So, Joe, can you briefly talk to us about Noisy Guts, uh, what it does and how's it going? Great. So, Noisy Guts is a medtech startup in Perth. We listen, record and analyse gut noises. Uh, so, we've come up with a way of non-invasively and accurately diagnosing and monitoring chronic gut health conditions. Right. And has COVID affected you this year? I think I think you just closed a seed round, so that might have just happened as it was coming on. Yeah, so we're, we've been really fortunate through COVID. We uh, closed our seed round on the 2nd of April just as COVID mm, was hitting. Nice. Uh, you know, the biggest impact for us has been our clinical trials, which are now on mm. hold. Uh, and even though colonoscopies are back happening in hospitals, the sample of patients we're getting is quite biased and they're not really typical. Mm -hmm. So we're still some months away from uh, returning to that clinical trial. Although we now have ethics amendment to be able to record uh, gut noises from people sitting at home. Right. That's been good for us because a lot of people working from home mm. have got... Stuck uh, at home, wearing Stuck at home, wearing <laughs> our belt, uh, recording their gut noises. So that's actually right. been quite good. So ups, ups and downs for and, us. And where did it all start? What was the problem you're trying to solve and how do you make money from it? So it started with a nine-year-old girl um, who we suspected had irritable bowel syndrome. IBS is a really chronic gut health condition. It affects 11% of the world's population and one in five Australians. Uh, now, we're at the point where we've done lots of other investigations, but we were really left with the prospect of should we do a colonoscopy on a nine-year-old mm. child. Uh, colonoscopies are invasive, they're costly, they're just unpleasant but it's the only way of ruling out everything else. Right. But it didn't give us a positive diagnosis for IBS. So that's the problem we started with. Could we come up with a way of non-invasively diagnosing this really common gut health problem? Right. And for a nine-year-old as well. Mm. So yeah. then what happened? How did you develop this acoustic belt? So it started. So we started with this problem, and then Prof uh, Marshall was sitting at uh, Innovator of the as Year, as in Nobel laureate, as in Nobel laureate Barry Marshall. Yes. Just throw that one in. Yeah. <laughs> so he's sitting there listening to um, the finalists showcasing their tech as as you do at these events. Someone was talking about this uh, acoustic sensors that you put into the foundations of a building, and it detects munching termite noises uh, and from that on the literally Adam Asorian I reckon that was yeah, was it? it was Adam yeah literally on the back of a serviette he started jotting down these wow. ideas what if we could listen to gut noises what if we could m put microphones on the stomach what if the gut had this own secret language you know oh my goodness wow you never know when innovation can strike hey exactly in those events yeah so he came back yeah. and he told me about that in 2016 and I thought, oh, he's really lost it. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Barry. This guy listens to yeah. <laughs> Shermites. Yeah. yeah, okay. 
Um, so we we adopted a fail fast approach of like, well, maybe other people have listened to Bulbarigmi before. Maybe we'll just see what the world has said about it. Mm. Maybe we'll just build our own uh, recording device. So we started listening to legs and hearts and all parts of mm. the body. Anyone who walked past the office would be like, hey, let me just listen to your gut for a minute. <laughs> and uh, so once we had this uh, prototype, bits were made from Bunnings, Austin Computers, JB, uh, you know, we just cobbled something right. together. And then we realised that we could pick up the housekeeping of the gut, which is what other people had already done. But then we noticed that my gut noises were different to everyone else on the teams, and that's because I've got IBS. Uh, And that's when it was like, oh, we're onto something. Mm. And then it was about, well, maybe it's just me. (laughs) So we went out and tested on 100 people. Let's have a look at, listen to gut noises from people with irritable bowel syndrome. Let's listen to healthy guts. Let's listen to people who have other organic diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. And that's when the magic started happening. Fantastic. And you've talked about Professor Barry Marshall, but can you tell us a bit about the team, the rest of the team? Mm. Sure. We started, you know, as I said, there was just uh, a very small team. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were able to go and pitch this idea and grant strap it to get some initial money in in the door. So that meant at one point we had about eight team members. Mm -hmm. So we had some engineers, we had the software, we had the hardware, we had clinical trial people. So we were a team of eight and now we're very lean. So I met uh, my co-founder, Mary Webberley. Um, uh, thank goodness, because she's just an absolute treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and we met a couple of PhD students um, and in the machine learning space. So at the moment, we have a very small, skinny team of three. Fabulous. And is Professor Marshall still involved? He is, oh, yes. Great. Yeah, he loves the tech. He loves talking Mandarin with our machine learning expert and anything to do with electronics. He's actually just a frustrated engineer. <laughs> uh, and he said the only reason he did med and not engineering is he didn't think he was good enough at maths. Wow, oh, wow. okay. Mm. And so how do you make money from it? Or actually before that, where are you at? Have you got a product now? You've had hundreds of people trialling it. So mm-hmm. obviously you have got a product. When do you get this commercialised and when do you start getting people paying for it and who's going to pay for it? Okay, all those, all those questions <laughs> now. Okay, so, uh, so by the time we left uh, UWA and spun the tech out, we yes. had a really good working prototype. We'd tested that on over 300 people. We'd done our algorithms, we'd patented, we'd published. We had enough to go, look, we can take the leap. Um, so that yeah, so we got there last year. This year has been all around product development. We were failing fast, and failing fast mm. means you don't develop things under ISO one three four eight five frameworks. You just fail fast and get where you need to be. Mm. Um, so we do have to backtrack and do a lot of that product development now. Uh, the belt that we have works perfectly, but it looks really ugly, mm. um, and it's you know it's stretchy belt, it's quite cumbersome um, type thing. Mm. Um, it's we didn't do any usability trials right. because mm. we we just needed to make sure the algorithms yeah. worked. Yeah, yeah. So, get the tech right. Yeah, yeah. You get the tech right. It's frustrating, but in the med tech space, you really have to build the rocket ship. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. just launch it. Yeah. But but there is some design work we need to go back and do now. Who's going to pay for it? It's funny because, you know, the, 
you know, one of the stories that's followed us around the ecosystem is that, uh, you know, initially when we uh, spoke to gastroenterologists, we thought they were going to love our tech because, mm-hmm. you know, um, we could replace colonoscopies and, of course, their response to it was yeah. just like, you know, that's my holiday house. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we've had to really look at uh, who's going to pay um, and adjust our business model to suit what the you know suit what the market wants. We know that in the public system, one of the biggest killers is having people with IBS on a wait list. Um, you know, so anything we can do to get rid of um, people from that wait list, those really low risk patients, is great. But in the private um, sector, we really need to address um, an additional revenue source for gastroenterologists. So mm. after you've after they may have taken a patient through a workup, after they've done a colonoscopy, they still won't have a positive diagnosis. That's when they can use the Sounds belt. Sounds like it's really disruptive. It is. Mm. So we um, Disrupting so a very nice, cosy industry. Yeah, <laughs> along the way we did look at a second device that we're developing around monitoring symptoms, and this can be used um, and that models based, based on uh, customers paying for that. Um, with an app so they can track and monitor their symptoms and work out what's causing their flare-ups and triggering symptoms. Mm. So there are a couple of different business models. Mm. And are there opportunities for this to be, you know, the technology to be used in other parts of our bodies? Yeah, it's an interesting one. We were just approached this week um, to do some work on stomas um, and that that's kind of interesting. Mm. Um, we have looked at inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, colitis, and celiac disease. Mm-hmm. So, but they're all gut health related. And obviously, from uh, given this, we was inspired by uh, Prof. Marshall, and he's a gastroenterologist. Sure. We're really kind of comfortable in that gut health space. I, we have wondered what would happen if uh, your appendix made noises before it burst, mm. um, but it puts it would put us into a much higher mid, uh, regulatory sure. category. Um, build the rocket first. But I think we're just going to build the <laughs> rocket, rocket first, first, and yeah, and really dominate one space first yeah. before we before we go into other areas. Now, a lot of people know you have as Dr. Josephine Muir, mm-hmm. but would be interested to know you're not a medical doctor. No, I'm not, Charlie. Well, you've got so a PhD. please don't have a stroke now. <laughs> I'm not going to be very helpful. And I only found that out just before we started we recording. Did, we did. I was just, Dr. Mary Weverly, Dr. Josephine Muir, I was presuming she's a medical doctor, right? No? No, she's no? a biologist. Okay. So... You got a PhD in political science, and but I want to take you back even further. Go back. You born and raised WA. I am a Frio girl. In right. fact, I the family home was on the western boundary of the old East Footy Oval in ah. Alice Street, East Frio. Mm-hmm. Very short walk from the uh, Friday night trots at uh, the Richmond Racecourse. The Dockers fan. Uh, no. Oh, no. Oh. Good work, Joe. Oh. No, Dear. it's not what you think, Janelle. <laughs> oh. you're, you're not a fan. Um, not a WA footy no. fan. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, you're calling Moving me, on. You? Anyway, <laughs> let's move along. <laughs> Favourite um, subjects at school? What mm. were you like? Did you show early leadership potential, entrepreneurship abilities? It's funny because my father was a publican. So this is the long answer. My okay. father was a public. Yeah, public. I like it. And there were three topics of conversation that I most heard. Um, you know, sitting at the bar, or um, when he had a break from pubs, he had a um, hamburger joint, which was at the base of um, in East Fremantle, where the ferry used to go off, and we used to have a lot of wolfies come through. So the conversations wow. I most heard, there were three of them. The first one was sex. 
uh, which often people talk about, you know, nursing remedies. This wasn't a conversation, always very hush-hush and obviously not something I was very interested in. Second conversation was about football. Mm -hmm. This never ended well for my father uh, and that's because, like, you know, my father, my father's father followed a VFL team called St Kilda. Uh Saints' fortunes uh, haven't changed much over the decades. So (laughs) this conversation was also didn't end well. But the third topic of conversation uh, was always the most animated, particularly when the Wharfies would come in for their jaffles and their Mexi burgers, was politics. So that's a conversation I was most interested Interested in. It's not something that the nuns at Iona were (laughs) particularly keen on. (laughs) However, I do note that my classmate, Michaelia Cash, is now a senator. So uh, perhaps I was a little too critical of the nuns because they appeared to uh, encourage some interest. Isn't she a force of nature? (laughs) She is. (laughs) So Iona um, at school. So what did you do after school? So I followed the political conversation. Mm. I did an arts degree in uh, Western Australia and then I moved to Monash. I was fascinated by the immigration debates because during the 80s when I was growing up, Mm. this was the conversation we were having. Uh, I spent some time in the uh, detention camps in Port Hedland, um, followed the conversation to a master's at ANU um, so I could be closer to the big house on the hill. Mm. I then followed that conversation through to a PhD at the University of Melbourne and then went to Princeton to finish it off. Wow. Fantastic. So Princeton spent, in the States. Yeah. Oh I spent a lot of time, I think 13 years at uni. So but I loved, I just loved the long Hunger for learning. Absolutely. Yes. And then you ended up chief of staff for a senator mm. for a couple of years. Now, that's a tough I started as her speechwriter. She's an amazing force of nature herself, Uh, just an intellectual powerhouse. We're talking about Helen Helen Coonan. Uh, I still have contact with her. Got an email from her the other day. Uh, She's now the chair of the Crown Board. And uh, what I loved about seeing the pictures of her with her grandkids is that she hasn't aged a bit and Mm -hmm. she's 73 uh, and still has far more hours in the day than I do. I think what politics uh, taught me is that it gives you a really unique look into how sausages are made, you know, how Mm. legislation is made, how policy is made, and it makes you really good at the numbers. You get to read the room really well. uh, and, And I think one of those skills of working out it's not how many people are voting for you, how many votes has this piece of policy got or, you know, what's going to happen with this legislation, but the nuances around, you know, what are the levers that I can pull to shift or reframe this conversation so I can get more votes. So it's not, how, you know, what people think, but why do they think that way and how strongly are they attached to this opinion? And how you can affect change, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. But you didn't decide on a career for yourself in politics. What was frustrating about politics is that you would work really hard on a piece of legislation and be really proud of it but you wouldn't see the end result of it. Like you wouldn't see the impact on human beings. You were just always that two steps removed. So when I moved back to Perth and still working on kind of organisational decision-making, I read an article about an ophthalmologist, Angus Turner, who's an amazing Mm. uh, man working in regional remote eye health, and I read the article and thought, oh, he's just changing the world. I've just got to meet him and I've got to work for him. So I went and worked for Angus. He had great... Science Institute. Yeah, he had such great ideas. And one of the things he was trying to achieve was 
uh, to ensure that there was uh, parity between if you had an eye condition, you could walk into one, you know, the Lions Eye Institute here or one of the top hospitals here. Mm-hmm. But if you were in Kununurra or the other side of uh, Kalgoorlie, you didn't have those opportunities. So um, he had this vision for a van, you now the Lions Outback mm-hmm. Vision van. Fantastic. So I raised that, we built it together, and now it's cruising around WA doing That's amazing fabulous, things. Joe. I love that, that you. Um, you know, you admire someone and you, you know, admire their work and who they are and you approach them. It's, I think that's, that's good advice for all of us. Yeah, I've always been very attracted to profoundly gifted, bright, sparky people who've got mm. great ideas. But in the whole, I've noticed that they often need a person like me to take that idea and actually action it and kind of make so it So is it because here was someone actually making change and following through, whereas your politics you were removed from the the eventual change of the policy? You just didn't see the impact of your work, so it was a little unfulfilling. Whereas even though I'm not the one doing surgery in a van in Kununurra, I know that uh, the work that I've done, I can see it, I can meet those Mm. people and just think, wow, I'm actually, that's a legacy you want to leave behind is impact rather than just, Mm. well, you know. Did that get you into medical? Was that, was that the leap from politics into med? Uh, yeah, yes. that was it. And then I was camping in Nalu Station uh, and Prof Marshall just happened to be there and with his family. We started talking on the beach. He was very frustrated because a lot of this great sparky ideas he have he has are outside of his mm. field mm. and therefore unlikely to get funded. Mm. So the way the NHMRC, um, the grant funding works, is you have to have a demonstrated you know, record in a particular thing for that thing to get funded. So he came up, you know, with the anorexic poo project, with this <laughs> idea about listening to gut noises. You know, he has 10 ideas before breakfast, right. but none of them could get funding. Mm. So uh, he asked if I'd come and manage his research centre and I thought, oh. On the beach, he asked you that? Yeah. Wow. First time you'd met. So, wow. Uh, I, I had known some of his family. I'd known okay. his grandchildren, but I hadn't actually, that was the first time we really sat down and talked and, mm. and I had an opportunity to to hear about, you know, what do you want to do now? Mm. Like, you know, you've won the Nobel Prize. You know, what are you interested yeah, in? Um, and he just—he's a very personable, approachable guy. Oh, he really is. Like, like chatting to someone in a pub. Yeah. Hey, hi, what are you doing, Charlie? No, I'm going. No, no, no. It's all about you. You won a Nobel Prize. I'm nobody. Yeah. And I <laughs> really great. love his commitment to learning. He just—he mm. uh, just took up Mandarin uh, recently because he wants to be able to deliver his helicobacter uh, talk in Mandarin. I just love that about people, this continuous, challenging, ongoing thinking. Just And I think also his understanding of himself that he needed someone like you yeah. to help bring it to life. You know, he spoke about those skills as being, you know, so I think that's fantastic. Nothing will happen without people like you to, you know, really bring it to life. Yeah, so this, the Marshall Centre for Infectious Diseases, which is a research centre I was managing, is such a... a big group and so much diversity there's Mm. lots of gonorrhea and meningococcal on the first floor there's helicobacter there is lots of uh, mosquito-borne viruses so you have all of these different different disciplines um so yeah it was really nice to be able to bring the center together but also have this little space for what we used to call you know transformative discovery but was really Barry just needed a place for his big ideas Mm. and some Mm. of those ideas Mm -hmm. go nowhere 
Some of them just needed um, some government lobbying or could, we, could you just change this Medicare benefit schedule because that way this would solve this problem. Oh, yeah, I can do that. Mm. Not everything needed commercialisation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and sometimes he would just have a good idea, what can we do with that? Well, we can improve the state of knowledge and then we can pass it on for someone else to take the baton. Mm. Not everything mm-hmm. had to go the mm. full way. Yeah. So now you're a MedTech CEO. Yes. <laughs> what do you know now that you wish you'd known before you'd started all this caper? Absolutely nothing. People always <laughs> ask me that and I go, you know, keep those rose-coloured glasses on because if I knew... <laughs> Might have dissuaded you. (laughs) I just think you've got to be incredibly optimistic in this game. There's Mm. a resilience and a grit factor you need. Mm. Um, So I just think keep those rose-coloured glasses on and and you'll know what you need to know. Because startups are hard enough, but medtech startup, goodness me, that's millions of dollars in 10 years, isn't it, to get to market? It's a a, (laughs) look at it. She's smiling (laughs) from here to here. It's such a great challenge. It's a tough one. I love it. Yeah. Right. So doing who's else. a startup leader that you admire? Or any leader really? <sighs> um, lots of them. Mm. What I've found particularly during COVID is that a lot of startups who are one, two years, five years ahead of me have been really approachable. So mm. particularly during um, the product development phase where we've gone back out to market. I've been on the phone um, and hassling people through LinkedIn um, every day, maybe having five, six, seven conversations. Um, I've really loved the conversations I've had with Annette Walker from Navbit. Um, but people you can just hop on the phone with mm. and say, well, how, how, why did you do that? Yeah. Why did you make those decisions? Yeah. I think startup founders are such an amazing resource. Um, So I've been doing that internationally, nationally, Mm. but even in WA, I've found the generosity of the community has been extraordinary. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So in five years' time, what does success look like for Noisy Guts? Well, the the reason uh, that I was so passionate about Noisy Guts is because I have um, IBS Mm -hmm. and it's something uh, that I've lived with. Uh, I got post-infectious IBS in my 20s. So um, being able to really value add to people's lives mm. and change people's quality of life, um, that's the thing about health that I was uh, really, you know, that really drives me and I hope that in five years we are on market and mm. we're really helping people. If yeah. we can do that, that would be fantastic. You've successfully fundraised and I think you won a million-dollar grant last year as well, which you had to match. What's it been like fundraising in WA? Because it's, it's tough, right? No, a big smile again. You're amazing. (laughs) Look, is it tough? Yeah, of course it's tough. Um, However, um, there are a lot of people in Perth that have got money, Uh, a lot of people in Perth that have made money. I think if your business case makes sense and you can articulate that, you'll find them. Yeah. But for Noisy Guts, we had a very deliberate fundraising strategy uh, and it started with Innovator of the Year. We knew that... um, We didn't want to go into an investor meeting cold, so we had a deliberate 12-month strategy. Uh, And I think this is kind of one of those lessons from politics. It takes um, seven, eight, nine times of seeing someone's name before you recognise it. I wanted every investor we were approaching to know about Noisy Guts, Mm. to see us on LinkedIn, to see that article in the Finger Review, to see us win that prize. I wanted them them to at least know our story so I wasn't going in cold. So we did that for 12 months. The Waiter Insight Mm -hmm. Awards and can't Mm -hmm. wait to see how they go next month. Mm. Um, Innovator of the Year, the uh, Digital Disruptors. If there was a pitch competition, 
one of our team was at it and we made sure that we just became really, really good at pitching. Um, and the other thing that helped us do is that when we eventually got to the investors in the room who were going to write the cheque, because we had uh, gone through so many pitches, we certainly didn't outsource any of that fundraising, um, there wasn't a question we didn't anticipate. Mm, there wasn't mm. a question we didn't know. We had learned so much through that process that by the time we got to the person who actually wrote mm. the cheque, you know, we were really well prepared and ready to accept it. Fantastic. Yeah, and you, uh, Joe, you're one of the most proficient pitchers I mm. think that I've seen. Can you maybe just talk about how you've crafted that? I mean, it's, I love this deliberate strategy, but how you've crafted yourself as a as a pitcher? Um, I think most of the credit goes to Jo O'Reilly, who is a opera singer in Sydney, and she did a lot of uh, prep work with both Mary and I. Wow. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just one of us that, Mm-hmm. In fact, even mm-hmm. when we had the engineers on board, we made sure everyone, because mm. you're always pitching, you're pitching at the mm-hmm. pub, you're yeah, pitching you all mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and as I said, it was just part of our strategy. We knew that we had to, um, we didn't know that all of our investors would be from Perth, uh, although as it turns out, most of them are, uh, except one. Um, but we wanted to make sure that everyone had heard about us. So we just became really, really good at it. And that mm. was a lot of videoing, a lot of practice, uh, a lot of listening to feedback, you know. Mm, people mm. often um, are so keen to jam-pack so much mm. into a pitch yeah. that they don't listen, mm. they don't read the room. If they would just cut out half of the stuff because yep. the only thing you're trying to achieve with a pitch is to get a conversation going. Get another meeting. Yep. Get that next meeting. Yep. Then just say half what you're going to say. Yep. And, in fact, one of my favourite pitches uh, was at the Lausanne's Best of the West um, and it was a, it was an interesting night um, looking at you know the people who are pitching and a woman got up um, she has the ugly avoca- avocados this kind of oh, yeah. sorbet oh, yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. terrible yeah. pitch it was disastrous but what she did do is she provided this chocolatey sorbet it was six o'clock at night mm. we're all starving and we're all sitting there <laughs> it was delicious. Yes. She absolutely won the pitch. Yeah. She didn't have to say anything. <laughs> Just give us the sorbet. It was perfect. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, we're going to finish with yeah. some rapid, quick, fire questions. So just shout the first thing in your head. It doesn't have to be one word. It could be a sentence. But do you want to start, Dana? I'll start. I'll start. So what's the single most important factor that makes a successful startup? Stubbornness. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think some people prefer to say resilience mm. or grit. grit. Um, Determination. But I think there's you've got to be really stubborn. Because you're going to have the slings and arrows, right? Yeah. And you're going to get so many people who put their up. head in their hands and go, oh, tech in Perth, this yeah, is going to be so happen. hard. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Founder as a solo or founder as a team? Absolutely team. I couldn't do what I do without Mary Webberley. Right. Who should we interview next? Mm. I love uh, love the female founders you've had on. So mm. Lucy Cook would be a Space great draft. one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, you know, what I, what I think is also interesting is the decision makers. So mm. I'd love to know, um, you know, with innovation vouchers just about to be released, I'd mm. love you to interview someone from government around who got them, why they got them. No. Actually, that's been uh, a recurring theme. Yeah. We're and on to that, Charlie. Yeah. Possibly even, you know, I think the angels, Greg Reby's done some good work educating yeah. investors mm-hmm. into med tech, fintech, mm. other, mm. other things other than property. Uh, I'd be interested to see. Yeah. I'd be interested to see how he's going with that and whether there yeah. are some additional investors coming out of the works. AI, like it or loathe it? Oh, love it. Obviously. Love it. 
Um, and if you were at a bar, what would you be ordering? Very important question. Dry July, I'll be going for, you know, soda and lime. Uh. Joe, you're very, very, very good girl there. What does self-care look like for you? Uh, a little caboodle called Miss Piper and the Zamia Trail on a Sunday morning at 7 o'clock. Oh, very good. And last one, what are you reading or listening to right now? I'm reading uh, Penny Wong's autobiography. I love yeah. there's an insult in there that says, I wish I was half as smart as Penny Wong thinks she is. Um, and I really do wish I was half as smart as she is. And I'm listening to um, the Perth Small Business Show podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and which is a little odd, but we're rebranding. And instead of being investor focused, we're focusing on customers and acquiring customers. So that's put me into the Instagram space and uh, building a gut health community around noisy guts. So I really love that uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. Great. Fantastic. Thanks, Joe. It's been mm. terrific to chat to you and learn more about noisy guts and, you know, most importantly, the, the future for noisy guts, um, yourself and Mary and the rest of the team. So thanks so much for joining us I wish us you today. all the best. Yeah. Thank you so you're much. You're an icon in the startup scene. Oh, Keep wow. doing what you're doing. You are. Fantastic. Thank you for giving back so much. Too. Yeah. I really oh. appreciate that. Pleasure. Also, thanks to our sponsors. The Startup West podcast is produced by Startup News and is made possible by the support from Space Cubed Coworking Spaces, the New Industries Fund, Curtin University, and RSM. We just heard the City of Perth are coming on as a sponsor. Oh, so that's great. That'll be our full set of five sponsors. We recorded this podcast at the Rift Studios in beautiful downtown Perth, Western Australia. Don't forget to subscribe to Startup West on your favourite pod platform so our latest episodes will wing their way automatically to your device and if you like what you hear leave us a review and i'm going to read a review from chris from dinner twist who's been on this pod yes he went and left us a review on apple Podcasts, and he says love it five stars great hearing from entrepreneurs in our own backyard well done team so oh, thanks chris for that review good work chris we'd love to hear from others as well thanks Danelle. thanks, thanks Charlie. Joe. thank you thanks joe